your son will be a little bit changed when he comes back and uh, not to worry about it and he'll you know get back into the swing of things and of course when i got back i thought everybody else had changed but it was was me and no one really wanted to hear about the work that we'd done Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this week's episode, we meet Doug Langrier, Chief of the Mission Support and Planning Section for the United Nations Office to the African Union in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. He began his career, now spanning close to four decades, as an engineer in the Australian Army, serving on operations in Namibia, Iraq and East Timor. His military career culminated in a move to New York with his family, where he began working with the United Nations. Welcome, Doug, to Life on the Line. Thanks, Sharon. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you about, as you say, 40 years of a career. So when did you decide to become an engineer? Like, How did that come about? When I first joined the regular army, I went through Duntroon in the new uh, training regime, which was 18 months. Like most things in my life, I sort of fell into it. I was going to join the Royal Australian Mechanical and Electrical Engineers, but my uh, officer commanding of my cadet unit when I was uh, at Duntroon, he was an engineer and he said, absolutely not, you're going to join my corps. And so he convinced me there to join the Royal Australian Engineers. And it's probably the best decision he made for me. And I absolutely loved the career. It was great. So you say the decision to some extent was made for you. Is that often how things come about when you join the Australian Army? Do people often find they end up in a corps they didn't necessarily anticipate? There's probably very few people that join the army that actually want to do that particular role. Probably aviators, they might be want to join to become, you know, helicopter pilots. But I think the vast majority of us, you know, we, we learn about the core. We're either allocated to the core of our choice. Yeah, so the engineers for me was the universe kind of put it in front of me. And I ended up by joining the engineers, which really set the tone for the rest of my military career. And what about your family? Did you come from a military background? No, not at all. After leaving school, I was a fitter and turner. So I was a tradesman for four years. So I did an apprenticeship and then I uh, worked with the Electricity Trust of South Australia for a year. And it's during that time that I joined the reserves and I realised that I wanted to do in my full time what I was doing part time. Told mum and dad that I was going to join the army and they were both horrified. And they said, oh, you know, you, you've got a great job. You know, you've got a job for life or a career for life. And of course, you know, our parents were very much uh, of that ilk that you joined one company, you worked there for 40 years, and then uh, then you left. So it was quite a shock for them that they uh, 
you know, that I told them that I was going to Duntroon. And your 40 years ended up being in the Australian Army or, or, <laughs> in, or indeed now working for the United Nations. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's a life of service. Certainly the transition between Army and the United Nations was a fairly simple one because it's, uh, you know, they're, they're both service-oriented organisations. So... Yeah, so yeah, 40 years. I still haven't got a gold watch at the end of it, but uh, <laughs> but, but we'll see. I'm still working, so uh, maybe when I, when I retire from the UN. So you say you started your army experience as a reservist. Did you always want to be an officer? I had actually thought of joining the reserves as a soldier, but mum found a... Uh, a clipping in the in the newspaper, a little uh, article, you know, join the reserves as an officer, get 18 months or it was a year of training, I think it was. And mum said, well, if you're going to join, then join as an officer. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. So once again, it was not a decision that I made. It was a decision that someone else and said, you know, what about this as, a, as an idea? And what did you think being an army officer would entail? What did you anticipate and what was the reality? So I think I had a, a view of what an officer's role would be that was quite different to what reality was. And I saw myself as kind of leading men and, you know, sort of out in the field and follow me, everybody, and all that type of thing. Whereas the reality really is about looking after the soldiers who are placed under your command. And that's because parents have loaned those people, those lives, to the army and I'm now responsible for them, for their safety, health and welfare. I found as a lieutenant, which was the greatest time, I think, you know, the greatest rank that I had because I had command of, of soldiers, but they were my my guys. Then when I was an officer commanding, so I had then a, a squadron of soldiers, really I commanded the lieutenants and the lieutenants commanded the soldiers. So I think my greatest, I guess the greatest joy was the time that I had command of soldiers and all of their little foibles that they would get up to. <laughs> so yes, that, and, but that, that was the reality of it, is, is quite a responsible position and not this idealised you know, hero position. Now, early on in your career, you deployed to Namibia in Africa. Can you tell us a bit about, well, how old you were at that time and how that experience came about? So Namibia was one of the first peacekeeping operations that the UN undertook for quite a few decades. So it was their first foray back into you know peacekeeping type operations. So Namibia was very much a classic peacekeeping operation between two belligerents that were in two different countries wanting political change. And eventually both of the belligerents wanted to get out of it. The South Africans were fighting in Namibia to stop the Southwest African People's Organization from taking over the country. And they were fighting mainly in Angola. And then the UN resolution that called for the peacekeeping operation was actually agreed by the council in 1978. But it took a further 11 years uh, for the deployment of that mission, just because both hadn't finished fighting yet. So the South Africans still believed they could win militarily and SWAPO were getting help from Angola, which was getting help from Russia and Cuba, Cuba mainly. The peacekeeping mission took a long time to come about, but eventually both belligerents just decided that, no, it's time for peace. In 1989, the South Africans ended apartheid. They decided that it was time to stop you know, all the fighting and then they would have elections. And so they pulled their troops back. We ended up uh, with a one-year mandate for the mission and uh, two groups of Australians, so two rotations deployed and served over there. The first one did 
the preparatory work, built all the returning camps and helped, you know, separate the uh, the belligerents. And then our crew went over and we helped to run the elections. So we had uh, the election periods, I think was in November, and uh, then Namibia got their independence in March the following year, so 1990. So I had a uh, an engineer troop and, you know, what I say the, the greatest joy of, of my life was actually commanding soldiers. Commanding soldiers on operations is, there's, there's no greater honour and privilege than actually having a, a group of professional engineers doing good work for a very successful peacekeeping mission. So I was based in uh, Grootfontein, which is in the centre of the country, and my other colleagues were based in uh, Rundu and Ondangwa, with their headquarters in Vindhuk. And we were there for six months, and we ran the elections, which were then considered free and fair, uh, without incident. I mean, we supported the elections. And uh, then we packed everything up and came home. And so I uh, was in another privilege, was to, to uh, be on the ship with nine uh, sappers and craftsmen to look after all the equipment. And it took us, uh, I think it was about two weeks to get to get back. So we came back by ship, which was a pretty rough voyage. It was quite uh, quite stormy. But um, again, we were able to get all of our equipment back safely and unloaded into the port Botany in Sydney. It's one of the few successful UN peacekeeping missions. There's five, actually, that are considered successful, including Cambodia, which Australians were on. And it came in on time, on budget, and achieved all of the tasks set out in the mandate. If we look at the larger peacekeeping missions now, we might talk about that later on, but they are very expensive, lots of people, and have been in those countries, mainly on the, the African continent, for lots of years. And they're just, just failing. And uh, they're failing not so much due to the effort of the peacekeepers, but they're failing because there isn't political will on behalf of the belligerents to have peace. And that's why Namibia was successful, because both uh, belligerents had the political will for peace and to transition the country into self-rule. You mentioned there, though, about that personal investment you had in caring for your soldiers under your command while you were on operations. How old were you at that time? Because that sounds like a huge responsibility. And indeed, it must have been formative then in shaping your approach to, to that level of responsibility moving on in your career. So I was mid-20s uh, when I deployed. I was a little bit older when I went to Duntroon because I did the fitting and turning apprenticeship first. So I was a couple of years older than my contemporaries. Uh, so yeah, mid-20s. The other troop commanders that were there, I think they might have been maybe 22, 21, 22. So yeah, I, I guess it was quite formative because of the responsibilities that we had for soldiers overseas. When you are deployed away from loved ones, and it, it can become quite difficult, we had no internet, we had no phones, you know, we could only call if you had a, um, a welfare issue. You know, this was the, the late the late 80s. Email was just coming in, so we were able to send uh, an email, but no one back here had internet. So, And that's where I think the Australian Army did quite well in forming the welfare organisation that was run by the 17 Construction Regiment. And we had uh, people all over the country who would come and you know, they visited my parents and said, oh, you know, your son's doing very well and here's a letter from him and all this sort of thing. So, and so I think the, uh, the support that we received uh, from the greater Australian Army was, was very, very good. Also helped a lot, I think, in keeping the soldiers informed about what is happening back in Australia. But also we had a mail system that we could then send, you know, send mail home. 
and write letters. And, you know, you see on all the, the TV shows where you have mail call and they'd come around and give out letters. It was the same, you know, you had letters that you'd receive from from your parents and uh, or from friends and you'd share the letters with your mates and say, oh, look, read, read this one, you know, this is, this is very funny. But it was also the negative side of that was that some soldiers just didn't have families or, you know, didn't have families that wrote to them. So they would, would quite happily read someone else's letter. So, yeah, it was a bit sad, but that's the way it goes. Do you think it changed you being in your mid-20s, having that level of responsibility, being overseas on operations? Did that shape you in any way for then how you then continue to develop your career in the Army? Any experience like that is going to have an effect, particularly when you, when you return. And there's probably a couple of things. So when you come back, I mentioned there that the people came around and saw my parents and it was only after I returned that my parents told me that uh, they said, oh, you know, your son will be a little bit changed when he comes back and uh, not to worry about it. And he'll, you know, get back into the swing of things. And of course, when I got back, I thought everybody else had changed, but it was, was me. So, you know, I was around soldiers and uh, I kind of also spoke a little bit like a soldier. So there was quite a few expletives in, in my language. <laughs> And I remember sitting, uh, when I did return, I was sitting at the dinner table and it was the night I returned. And so we're sitting with a nice roast chicken and mum and dad and my two brothers. And we're watching the news. And at that time, uh, Mandela was released from prison and they were showing the apartheid you know, footage and these armoured vehicles that had the big uh, fans on the top that were spewing out uh, tear gas. And dad said, oh, so what are those vehicles, Doug? And I said, well, dad, they're called Caspers and they are a, a mind-proof vehicle and they're being used as a, as a riot control. He said, oh, I see. And what's that white stuff coming out the top? And I said, oh, that's tear gas, dad. And he said, oh, tear gas, that doesn't seem to be doing much to the locals. They seem to be, you know, no real effect on them. And I said, well, that's true, dad, but it actually does F all to these guys. <laughs> And mum just gave me the roundhouse smack in the back of the head. And I went, oh, F mum, what was that for? <laughs> At which time dad said, now, Gloria, remember, remember? Yeah, they did say he would be a little bit different when he got back. I realised then that I had changed and that, apart from having to moderate my language, I, um, I kind of went back into a fairly dull job. And so I missed the excitement of being on operations overseas I also found that uh, my colleagues who hadn't deployed, they were maybe not jealous, but I think they'd heard so many Namibia stories and so many Namibia presentations and lectures that they really weren't interested in, <laughs> in, in another Namibia story or another Namibian presentation. So it was, you know, we were very proud of what we did, but when we got back, no one was really interested and no one really wanted to hear about the work that we'd done. That was a difficult transition, and that probably took about six months to get used to being back in you know, the mainstream military. You were back in Townsville, and you did settle into your new role back in Australia. And it was around this time or soon after that you met your wife, Julia. Mm. So tell us how that came about. So when I returned, I actually went to the School of Military Engineering, and that was for the remainder of the year, and then posted to Adelaide. So I was a recruiting officer in Adelaide. And Julia was an Army Reserve officer as well. So we met at the bar in Keswick Barracks. And uh, on a Tuesday night after she'd finished her parading, yeah, we just started talking and then found that we had a lot in common. And yeah, it was just uh, the relationship then flourished from there. 
And of course, we'll get to this later, but Julia's recently accompanied you in, on some of your work in Africa. So it's been very much a shared experience um, for you both. But before we get to that, tell us a bit about Staff College, because obviously today, Command and Staff College is based in Canberra, whereas you actually went to Queenscliff, I believe, which in Victoria. What was it like at that time? So it wasn't uh, a joint staff college at the time. It was army only. And it was a very formative experience for me because it was one of my first forays into the academic world of actually having to study, read other people's opinions and ideas and, and then formulate my own opinions and ideas and then put it down in paper. I also found that being with, I think there was 90 odd Australian officers there, uh, majors, I always felt like the dumbest guy in the group because these guys were brilliant. You know, and they very, very smart, very engaging, very easy to talk to. But of course, we're all in a competition to see who, you know, would get the, get the best marks. And so I think the vast majority of us got the social C. So, you know, we didn't get the, the work-life balance wrong. And a couple of the, the very, very smart guys, they got, you know, Bs and I think there was one A, I can't quite remember. But collegiate attitude, I think, that pervades Staff College was what I enjoyed the most. So it was about the people. I must admit, though, when I was there, I really didn't enjoy it. But in reflection, I realised that actually it was quite a formative education level and something that you know I was able to use when I then had my subsequent postings for critical analysis, how to think, and how to then put that down on paper as cogent thoughts and develop an argument. From Staff College, I then uh, we packed the family up and went over to Louisiana as a, uh, well, it was an observer controller. So it was while uh, the American brigades would come in on exercise, we would then watch what they do, critique them. And then, you know, if they had a battle, we would then control, help control that battle to, uh, to say, you know, so you've been injured, you're, you're dead, take off your helmet and sit on your pack and, uh, and the like. And that was for two years. And uh, that was difficult for Julia because although we think, you know, Americans are the same as us, uh, being in Louisiana was quite different and quite challenging uh, for Julia to run the household. You know, for me pre professionally, it was great, but it was, uh, I think Julia was quite happy to, to leave there and come home to Australia. Now, while you're in Louisiana, of course, 2001, September 11, and we had the attacks in the US. Where were you and what do you remember about that morning? Because obviously for everyone, it's etched on our memories. But for you, you were actually in the US at the time. In fact, we had a, um, a division headquarters uh, were exercising at the base where we were. So they were going through an exercise in pre-deployment exercise, I should say, ready to go to Kosovo. So we had um, you know, soldiers in the field. We had officers in the headquarters all running things. And then uh, I'd come out of the, it's called the box, the training box. Come out of the box that night, home, going into work then the following morning to pick up my vehicle and go back out. And I walked into uh, the, the big hall where all of our uh, staff, all the other observer controllers uh, were, and uh, watching TV. And there was a, a guy kicking the desk and there was another fellow crying and, you know, just... So I walked in and looked at this and I'm thinking, hey, fellas, what, what movie is this? And they said, it's, it's not a freaking movie, man. We've been attacked. We've been attacked. And I'm going... Okay, it's probably not a good time for an Australian to be here. So I went into my office, turned on the TV and watched it just as the uh, second aircraft hit. And I thought, okay, this is really bad. So 
I observe the the various stages of grief. You know, there was denial. You know, this can't be happening. You know, this is this is made up. This cannot be happening to us. You know, where the people don't attack America type of thing. And then there was uh, so the, the denial. Then the anger came out when it was real, and they did you know receive confirmation that this is actually happening. And that's where you know we had people kicking furniture or. You know, they would be uh, go outside and they'd be shouting and screaming and and um, and then they would compose themselves. Uh, as, as we got a, you know, our team together and said, you know, we have people exercising here, so we need to get you back out and support them. Then there was probably grief, I think, more than anything else, uh, that this had happened. And, um, you know, some people knew people uh, in the Twin Towers. One fellow, his father owned a shop in the Twin Towers, and he obviously couldn't reach him, but he actually had gone out and played golf that day. So, you know, it was little stories of survival like that, but generally they were uh, quite rare, uh, and most of the stories of people who knew in the Towers had had passed away. So we then found that uh, over the ensuing weeks, the the military acted very swiftly, and uh, my last rotation at Louisiana in um, at Fort Polk was actually the the unit of the the brigade from 101st that were then about to deploy into Afghanistan. They were very focused. They were very professional, and they listened to everything we said. So they were the first unit in. So it was it was quite an experience. Um, I think the civilian population that we were dealing you know with outside, uh, so friends. Um, uh, they just the disbelief that this had happened, pretty much the unanimous support of Americans for the reaction or the actions that the American military took. So very, very supportive. But just getting out of America was was tricky as well because you know anyone that didn't have a US passport was then subject to more detailed search, interviews, your bags were gone through. And so this heightened security in the US was something that was also not experienced by the US population. Previously, so that's where all of the you know greater security checks, the screening, even internal flights, you know, you had to go through you know, all the security, and then you know the the metal detectors and the like. So it was that was the day that America changed. You know, I think in 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 my opinion, and uh, certainly air travel changed from then as well. There we all have experience now going through the uh, the airports and the screening. So uh, yeah, so I think that was that was my my biggest memories of um, or yeah of of nine eleven. And then on your return to Australia, you became involved in a remuneration project and and for that you're awarded a commendation. So just talk us through that particular project and and its importance at the time. So when we get back from uh, Louisiana, uh, I took up this role on promotion to Lieutenant Colonel uh, as the Deputy Director of the Remuneration Reform Project. Now this project had been going on for 12 years because at the time, I think the Defence Force as a whole realised that paying everybody the same on the same type of scale was not rewarding those who have you know, greater skills or greater value outside. And if we look at a pilot, for example, they were paid exactly the same as everybody else of the same rank. Um, and yet we had these enormous allowances that were in the nature of pay that they weren't getting superannuation. Uh, on and that, but they were still paying tax, so it was just an unfair system. So my team and I were able to go through and identify the weaknesses with the current system, what we had to do to address it, to be able to then move on to a new system, which is the which was the graded officer pay scale. So we had to get all of the specialists out of the system, 
to start with. So doctors, dentists, lawyers, and we then ran pay cases for them based on competency. Oh, the chaplains, sorry, they were the others. Based on uh, competency. So as you graded or as you gained more competencies, you were able then to, you know, go, go up in pay. And some of those competencies were prerequisites for promotion as well. So because they were technical streams. So we're able to get them out and then identify who should be paid based on what allowances they were receiving. So that's how we populated the structure. Now, in 2004, you deployed to East Timor. Um, so talk us through that particular experience and really where that took you in your career. So my role in Timor was as a military advisor uh, for operations with the uh, fledgling East Timor Defence Force. I use my, um, I guess, my military background and experience and my planning uh, experience that I'd developed there in Fort Polk to help them develop their procedures uh, because all of the uh, Timorese Defence Force were the ex-fighters uh, who were fighting against the Indonesian occupation. So very, very good fighters, very charismatic leaders, but they didn't really have any concept of you know how a military runs and how a military operates. So I was part of a small team that was providing uh, training and advice as part of the UN peacekeeping mission that was there, which is quite odd because usually the UN doesn't do training of militaries, um, particularly if those militaries then go on to be the leaders of the coups, uh, which is uh, never a good look for the UN. So we were um, a separate Australian team. We had uh, some uh, senior warrant officers uh, that were doing the training out at their their training depot, along with some Portuguese officers that were, were also providing training. It was also a quite a formative experience for me uh, that I helped them write an operational order. I drafted it, and it was about four pages. I had it translated into Portuguese. The boss, he didn't sign it. And then the day came for them to actually execute this, this plan. And it was simply a move of people from one location to another. But we had to have, you know, the prelim moves of packing up the kitchen and you know, packing up all their beds. And so the kitchen guys moved and then they set up in the new location and set up their breakfast for these guys who were going to move in the morning. So they jumped onto trucks and then they all moved and everything went swimmingly. And I said to the young lieutenant, uh, so, so the plan went as, as it's supposed to. And he said, yes, yes, it was a very good plan. And I said, but the boss didn't sign it. And, you know, it was never translated and it was never given to the, to the soldiers. And he said, oh, it was, but we used our method. And I said, what method is that? And he showed me a page with nine lines of, of tetan written on it. And he said, we just called everyone on the phone and told them this, and it all happened. So there I realized that I don't know everything. My way isn't the only way. And if you don't listen to local advice, then you're going to mess it up every time. So it's asking them what they wanted, not telling them what you think they needed. My background in the UN started there because I realized that actually I can help, but only in their, their way. In, you know, so taking the cultural aspects into consideration uh, when you are working with other people who aren't Australian military officers. Now, in 2006, you then deployed to Iraq. How did that particular operational experience come about for you? So that one was a posting uh, or a rotation as the Australian liaison officer. Uh, so I was actually located in Kuwait and I was uh, the liaison officer in uh, Central Command Headquarters. And I think for me, working again with the Americans, 
was a great experience and just seeing the might, I guess, of, of the, the American military and their equipment, the sea of helicopters and aircraft and just how, how enormous this machine actually is. And that if you don't have a political end state, you only have a military end state, you're never going to win. You know, you're never going to get to, to what you, you want because militarily, you know, the American military did topple the government in Iraq. And six weeks later, the American military were being attacked because they very quickly went from being the liberating force to the invading force. But because there was no political uh, end state, like now what do we do? They had to very quickly try to set up a government that was unpopular, that was corrupt, and therefore you're supporting this unpopular, corrupt government, and therefore you're, you're actually now part of the problem. And so by 2006, you know, they were, had, uh, I think it was activities in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but Afghanistan had scaled down a bit, but Iraq was getting more and more uh, involved uh, at that stage. So we saw the development of various technologies from uh, uh, improvised explosive devices, from all of the munitions that were left behind. And uh, as we came up with a, a means of defeating it, then the insurgents would come up with a way of defeating it. Our defeat mechanism. So, you know, it's, we had um, the development of the IED and we're still seeing IEDs being deployed um, around the world now. It's actually, they've actually now become a commodity. That's what we're finding in, uh, in the African continent is that part of their payment to, you know, a terrorist organization from one to the other, it might be, well, we'll give you, you know, $600,000 and we'll give you three suicide bombers and five vehicle IDs, you know, see, uh, so, you know, it, it's now become a commodity. That's what we're facing at the moment in Somalia with the Al-Shabaab and with Boko Haram in the Sahel region. The latter part of your career has largely been spent in Africa and was preceded by a stint with the United Nations in New York. So just talk us through how that became your focus, essentially, and has been your focus for the last 15 years or so. I was quite fortunate to get a call from my careers advisor and saying, you know, do you want to work for the UN? And to which I said, yes, that sounds like fun. Uh, so I had to go through a application process. Uh, I was interviewed for the role of a military planner with the Office of the Military Affairs in the military planning section in New York. So I was successful in getting that job. So we then packed the family up again and moved over to New York. Um, we lived there for four years. And that was, my main role there was to plan the military component of peacekeeping missions, uh, to revise existing missions to make sure that they still were able to, to do what they're supposed to do. I also closed three missions while I was there. So I did two years as a military planner focused mainly on Somalia and then two years as the deputy chief of the military planning section. And that took me back to Timor, where you know, we revised the military component, but there was still the Australian component uh, there, mainly aviation unit and some military observers. Uh, that was in 2010. But it also then took me to Sierra Leone, Liberia, you know, a whole bunch of other countries uh, on the continent where we closed or were downsizing the missions. And then we closed the mission in Chad in Central Africa. But that then gave me the experience and exposure to a whole bunch of other people uh, who then remembered my work as a military planner and then helped, I guess, selection for other posts later down the track. So I ended up by being invited to, in 2014, 
to be the um, chief of the Joint Operations Centre in South Sudan. And that was during the period that South Sudan fell apart again. They started uh, you know, going back to war. Um, and so that was a very busy and, and a very challenging uh, time where you know, I witnessed uh, firsthand the brutality that man can meter out on other people, you know, um, using a stick, a machete, you know, and just, uh, just the brutality. I think was was really quite shocking. Yeah, I'd only spent a year there um, because also the family were suffering a bit back here because I was ostensibly in the middle of a war zone, and so they uh, were understandably quite quite worried. So I said, look, I don't see this finishing anytime soon, and you know, even today they're still fighting after three peace agreements, uh, you know, which, which none of which have, have, have worked. Yeah, so I returned home in 2015, did a renovation on the house. And then in 2016, Brigadier uh, Mick Burgess asked if I wanted to be the Chief of Staff. And I said, well, I've just finished the reno on the house, so sure, why not? So I was the Chief of Staff of Nine Brigade for, for two years. And this is indicative of how, you know, the, the universe just gives you opportunities. You finish one thing and then suddenly I'm asked, you know, go to be Chief of Staff, Nine Brigade. So I did that for a couple of years and that was a great exposure to the reserve world. And just the dedication and professionalism of the reserve soldiers and officers that I saw was, was fantastic. After that contract finished, um, I thought, well, yes, I'll just retire now. And then a couple of months later, I got a phone call from my current unit, which is the UN office to the African Union, and uh, said, now, would you be interested in doing that job? I said, yeah, what job was that? There's one that I applied for in 2010 and was found suitable, but I didn't get the, the post. So eventually I ended up going working for the office that I actually helped establish in 2010. So I've been there ever since. So you've invested so much of your energy, your career in the African continent. Mm. What is it about Africa that for you has, has such an appeal? Look, I think it goes back to Namibia. They say that once you've got the African soil on your, on your boots, you're destined to return. Uh, they had a similar saying in uh, South Sudan as well. They say, once you've drunk the waters of the Nile, you are destined to return. But actually, all you get is dysentery uh, <laughs> from the waters of the Nile. Uh, but the, um, I think it's just the, I just love the African uh, people, their resilience to conflict and hardship, because life in Africa is not easy. Certainly in the centre and the west, um, sub-Saharan Africa is probably a bit better. Uh, they have better infrastructure and access to you know, food. In Ethiopia, there's still good access to food. And their food security is a lot better, but they, you know, like the World Food Program, I think they still feed around four million people out of the continent. So it's sorry in in Ethiopia. So you know it's it's not all easy, but these people they just day to day they get up and they do their thing, and uh, just their resilience. Um, we found the Ethiopian people to be very very friendly. They have a very very old old culture. That comes through in their everyday life. So they, they actually practice their religion. About 30% are orthodox and very devout. Uh, then there's another 30% that probably, I think, about 30%, yes, is uh, Presbyterian. And then the other 30% are Muslim. And then the remainder are a bit of a mixture of other religions. But they all live in harmony and they all live together really well. But it's the tribal issues that bring them back to conflict pretty much every time. I think it's the African people, their resilience, very friendly. After they realise that you're not British, 
and uh, because of the some of the colonial baggage that uh, some of the countries have, uh, particularly the French uh, ex-French colonies of the four countries that have recently had a coup in the last two or three years, all of them were ex-French colonies. So, but once they realised that you know you're an ex-colonist and that actually we come from a colony as well, then uh, yeah, then they're very very friendly. So, of all the work you've done in Africa. What are you most proud of? It's probably three. There's um, the work we did in Namibia. My troop actually uh, built a playground in one of the communities. And that was quite an achievement. And it actually made a real difference to the kids' lives uh, in that in that town. In fact, some 33 years later, we went to visit uh, Namibia as part of a, you know, a, a tour. And uh, we found the old playground. And it's still there, but it's dilapidated now. So it hasn't been maintained. But that was a lasting thing that we built. So ordinarily, you just come in, do your peacekeeping mission, and then leave and take all your kit with you. Quite an achievement, I think, to actually leave something, a bit of a lasting legacy of the UN mission that was there. The next would be in South Sudan, an attack from one uh, ethnic group on another ethnic group, and they killed 50 people and injured 100. But we were able, through the efforts of the uh, Joint Operations Centre, and the uh, medevac teams, we were able to evacuate all of those people uh, that were injured or needed evacuation to various hospitals around South Sudan to then save those extra uh, those lives. And um, you know the the most critical casualties came back to Juba, where I was based, and the hospital, the Cambodian hospital there. Uh, I remember ringing the officer commanding and say hey, how many emergency beds do you have? And he said, five. And I said, okay, there's 23 casualties, probably, you know, probably one coming in, going to land in about half an hour. And he said, no worries. And he just went out. His team got the bed set up. They were under tents. You know, there was all these you know, hospital beds. We had people on the ground and the like, but he met them all at the um, helicopter landing zone, transported them all out. We didn't lose an extra or anybody else. So no one else died that night. So that was, uh, I think, a great achievement of how, you know, in an emergency situation, people are pulled together. And uh, we coordinated everything through the Joint Operations Centre. So it was quite a late night for us all, but everyone survived. Probably the last one is, it's an odd one, but it's writing a peacekeeping plan to avoid deploying a peacekeeping operation. So I wrote the peacekeeping operation plan for Somalia. And I knew that the uh, the UN had no appetite to send people back, and there's there was no peace to keep. So I wrote the uh, I wrote the peacekeeping plan, uh, presented it to the council, and I think they realised that it was going to be too big, too expensive, and the likelihood of failure was very high, and they just didn't want that risk. So I think there we probably saved quite a few peacekeepers' lives. Unfortunately, the African Union did deploy a mission and they're still there today and it's they just can't get out and it's a very difficult mission for them they've lost thousands uh, of soldiers probably still a few unfortunately that will 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 die uh, on the way as they try to extract themselves at the end of next year so it it kind of validated the fact that um, you know a un mission could not do the job uh, that the african soldiers were doing uh, because it's a peace enforcement operation, because there's no peace to keep. And these guys, very brave, very courageous, and they just keep going back. And, you know, the, the work that these guys are doing is really, really, really commendable. But it also shows that if you don't have political will, you're not going to get a peaceful solution.
and that's uh, unfortunately they're fighting a terrorist organization in Al-Shabaab. I think the work that uh, that I'm doing at the moment in supporting the African Union is also very important work, but the African Union is too small for the amount of problems that are facing the African continent. Uh, so despite their best efforts, you know, the, the African continent is starting to, or continuing, uh, to have um, a lot of insecurity uh, and the security threats are becoming more complicated and complex. It's no longer state on state, it's all intrastate. And now it's even, you know, against a, um, you know, terrorist organisations that have no interest in a political outcome. They are just there pushing their agenda, particularly Al-Shabaab and uh, Boko Haram in the Sahel region. So it's it's a very, very complicated and very complex uh, security environment at, at the moment. And the African Union is uh, trying as it might, but it's just under-resourced and understaffed. What do you see yourself doing next? Well, I'm going to try to retire for the fourth time. Uh, but as I said before, you know, the universe keeps putting things in front of me. Um, so I'm not sure. We're, we're planning to finish up with my current role uh, next year. Uh, so Julia has joined me in Addis Ababa. And certainly coming back to Australia, we realise you know, what we're missing. So I think we're going to try to uh, travel and uh, spend a bit more time with the family. My time away and the, the various adventures that I've had have only been possible because Julia has been very supportive. And uh, so she was you know, looking after the kids at home. Uh, she homeschooled the kids in um, the US while we were there. So she's been my, you know, sort of the bedrock from which I can then go and have my adventures. So it's been great for our last adventure in Africa for that she was able to come and join me. So we've been looking at doing some travel around Australia and then, uh, you know, further afield. But I think just staying at home <laughs> it will, will be a, a nice uh, adventure for us as well. Yeah, so just uh, just to relax and rest a bit next year. Well, from what you shared with us, Doug, I can't imagine you retiring. Um, you've had such a rich and incredibly an outstanding career. Thank you so much for talking to us on Life on the Line, sharing your memories, your insights, your extensive experience, and we really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure. And if someone's got a job for me when I get back, then uh, <laughs> they can get in touch with you, I suppose. I'm sure that you'll have lots of offers, Doug. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Follow this show at Life on the Line podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at LOTL Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening, unless we forget. <laughs>